You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. It was the leak that rocked the nation, a draft Supreme Court ruling written by Justice Samuel Alito that overturns Roe versus Wade. It appeared in Politico, and if Alito's opinion is the final ruling, a woman's constitutional right to choose an abortion will end, and her ability to get reproductive care will depend on where she lives. Here to talk about this extraordinary story is the Washington Post Supreme Court reporter, Robert Barnes. Bob, welcome to First Look. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. So there are two reasons this is such a huge story. First, what it does legally. Talk about the significance of overturning Roe and Casey, which is the other case that's mentioned in this opinion. Right. Well, remember, this is a draft opinion, uh, not final. The chief justice, when he confirmed that it was a legitimate and genuine document, said no ju- no justices have yet committed to a position uh, on this issue. But it certainly follows uh, the way it sounded at oral argument in this case, where it sounded like five conservatives, three of them uh, nominated by President Trump, uh, were ready to overturn Roe and Casey. Uh, that would, in a sense, uh, turn return uh, the issue of abortion regulation back to the states without any kind of constitutional guidelines. It would mean that if those states wanted to s- simply say there is no abortion uh, allowed in this state, they would be able to. I think there are 13 states that already have uh, trigger, so-called trigger laws that say if Roe is overturned, uh, abortion will be illegal in the state. And so it's you know sort of hard to overestimate what a difference uh, that would mean uh, from what we've experienced basically the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And the second reason this was such a big story, Bob, is the fact that the draft leaked. Um, we haven't seen this in, in recent memory. It's a betrayal of the culture of the high court, isn't it? What, what do we know about how a leak like this happened? Well, it, it is, as you say, practically unprecedented. There have been leaks from the court before, there's often uh, reporting that shows how judge, the justices voted or perhaps changed their votes. Uh, never something like this, where an entire draft opinion uh, with you know, appendix and all has been released to the public. Uh, it, it, you know, the court is just sort of taken aback by, uh, by this and where, how it happened. Uh, The chief justice has ordered an investigation by the marshal of the Supreme Court into what happened. Uh, And so we don't know at this point, but it's, it's, you know, again, hard to overstate what a uh, a momentous thing this is for the culture of the court. Mm -hmm. Talk more about the culture of the court, because I can understand how something like this, a leak of 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 a draft opinion, yes, it's a draft, but a leak of a document like that, what that does to say the the feelings of trust within that building. Right, you know, remember, these are nine people who have to work together uh, for basically the rest of their lives if they they want to hang on uh, that long. 
And so they do have to have some amount of trust. And, you know, it's worth, I think, a little bit understanding the process when a, a case is argued, uh, the justices very quickly, within days, cast initial votes on how they're going to come out. Uh, the chief justice or else uh, the senior justice, if the chief is not in the majority, assigns an opinion uh, to, to a justice to write. Uh, then it starts a big process. And in a huge case like this, you can imagine there are going to be all sorts of drafts, uh, all sorts of dissents, uh, lots of these things sort of swirling around uh, the court, particularly this time of year. And so, you know, they now sort of worry, does every uh, sort of draft that comes around of this, uh, is it sort of susceptible for uh, release? And uh, you know, it's interesting, this one uh, that Politico uh, published was from February. Uh, that opinion has probably changed substantially uh, by now, as others have weighed in. We just don't know. Um, but it's a, it's a process that goes on for months. Mm -hmm. I I'm writing notes down really fast, Bob, because you said something really interesting. Um, you said that the senior justice is the one who assigns the opinion if the if the if the chief justice is not in the majority. So am I the two questions come to mind. One, the fact that this that this draft opinion was written by Justice Alito, does that mean should we infer from that that Chief Justice Roberts was not in that five four in that the among the five um uh folks voting in voting along with Justice Alito? And two does that mean Justice Thomas, as uh, if I remember correctly, is the se is the senior justice uh, on mm -hmm. the court after after the chief justice? That it was Justice Thomas who assigned Justice Alito the lead of writing the majority opinion. This draft, I mean. Right. Well, we'll know when it comes out, but I think that th those are all uh, good assumptions to make. The chief justice at uh, oral argument. Uh, put forth an argument that, uh, you know, you could uphold this Mississippi law at issue, which would ban most, almost all abortions after 15 weeks, that you could uphold it without overturning Roe or Casey uh, by just removing what those uh, decisions had put in about the viability line. That is, that the states could not enact laws put an undue burden on uh, the right to abortion before the fetus is viable outside the womb. And, you know, he sort of floated this idea, why don't we just get rid of this line, uphold this law? Um, and there was really no takers among the conservatives. Mm -hmm. There was very little discussion at the oral argument uh, about what he said. And so, you know, one could surmise uh, that, you know, perhaps he tried that at conference. It didn't go over. There are five who do want to try to see if there is a way to write this opinion that overturns Roe and Casey. Um, I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, and that is that the chief justice has ordered an investigation. Do you have any insight into how that investigation will be carried out? Well, we don't. He was very, uh, well, he said ab almost nothing about it except who was going to be doing it. The marshal of the uh, clerk, a former retired lieutenant colonel, lawyer, who has been in the job not very long. Um, 
you know, I'm not, I'm hardly expert on these things. Supposedly there are some clues in the, uh, the document that Politico published that would uh, perhaps lead one way or the other. You know, it's probably a universe of about 60 people um, mm -hmm. that would possibly have had access uh, to this draft opinion. So it's not, it's not huge. Um, and we also don't know if it uh, was simply a mistake that something uh, happened, that it got out in a way that it wasn't uh, supposed to get out. We simply don't know uh, this quickly, the answer to all of those questions, or if there was uh, one leaker, what his or her motivations were. Bob, I understand you are coming to us from Atlanta, um, where you covered Chief Justice Roberts' first public remarks yesterday, and I believe um, Justice Thomas apparently will be, will be speaking today. What's happening in Atlanta, and what did the Chief Justice say, if anything, about this yeah. uh, leaked draft opinion? Well, uh, these are called judicial conferences by each of the regional uh, you know, courts of appeals and circuits. This is the 11th circuit. Uh, here in Atlanta, and uh, there, there are sort of num numerous ones going on around the country about this time of year. Some are at different times of year. Justice Alito canceled his opinion at the uh, Fifth Circuit, which was going to be meeting in Nashville, uh, but the chief was here. He repeated sort of what he had said before, that this was appalling, uh, that, but that if the person who leaked it thought that it was going to influence the court's deliberations, they were, I think he said, absolutely foolish uh, that the court would go about uh, things the way it normally does. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this is not, I, have, I should tell you, this, this, these kind of conferences are not the place for uh, tough questioning or follow-ups. The <laughs> interviews are conducted by another judge uh, and at one point, Judge Carnes yesterday when talking with the chief said, I'm going to ask you one question that's not on the script. So uh, you can be pretty <laughs> sure the chief knew what was coming and he was going to say what he wanted to say about the leak. And that was all. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Robert Barnes, thank you for that download on this this leak and what's what's happening with the Supreme Court. I should have known you were um, not in Washington. I love that chair, and uh, I've seen <laughs> that chair uh, in, in various hotels. Robert Barnes, Supreme Court reporter for The Washington Post, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. All right, we're gonna keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post deputy editorial page editor, Ruth Marcus, along with Washington Post columnist, George Will. Ruth, George, welcome back to First Look. Glad Good to morning. be with you. Okay, so let's keep talking about the Supreme Court. Ruth, you wrote that the leaked draft is a disaster for the Supreme Court. Explain why. Well, it's a disaster for the court for some of the reasons that you and Bob were talking about. And I also think it's a disaster for the women of America. Um, and George and I probably disagree about that, but we do agree about the leak. Look, Jonathan, you and I are members of an editorial board. We sit around a table. We disagree among ourselves about um, what we uh, believe the editorial position should be. In the end, somebody, our benevolent dictator and through consensus, 
decides the position and we don't go out and bellyache in public or leak competing drafts or anything else. This is a, you know, th this is our minor analogy, a much less momentous, I think, for the country than this. But it, it would be impossible for us to function as an editorial board if we thought that the dumb things that some of us sometimes say behind closed doors or the positions that we try out would be um, just leaked because somebody didn't agree with or wanted to lock in a position or whatever else the still unknown um, motive was for the leaker. How can a court that, as Bob said, they're sentenced to life sentences with each other, um, how can, it's very difficult to go on and rebuild trust once you have a, a event like this. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, when I talk to people about how we do things, what an editorial board does, I often liken it to the Supreme Court, how we deliberate um, things and how opinions come to be. George, you also well, wrote about this. you in your robes next time, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have the, the little stripes that Chief yeah. Justice Rehnquist used to have on his sleeves. George, you wrote about the leak as well, and you said the leaker committed, quote, an infamous betrayal. Talk about why that is. Well, because it, the, the leak almost certainly truncated the negotiation process by which uh, opinions are shaped over many months. Let me give you an example. Ruth, correct me if I'm mistaken here. Earl Warren was so eager to get a unanimous decision in 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education that uh, he got the vote on board of Justice Felix Frankfurter by putting in the phrase, and it might have been mischievous, that's another question, the phrase that integration shall proceed with deliberate speed. Uh, I, I cite this only said that not that that was a good thing to put in the opinion, but that uh, opinions are not final until they're final. Uh, and and it, it's hard to see how the negotiation that was probably ongoing with this over certain kinds of language, and this language can be consequential, uh, can, can now proceed. I'm sorry, the, these are arguments are arguments over within the court as a, even as you believe you have a majority, I can join, but I'd like you to think about whether we could amend this footnote or I'd like you to reconsider this sentence. And it's a give and take to make sure you can hold your majority. And one of the things that inevitably we will all do when the ultimate decision comes out sometime late next month, probably, uh, unless they speed up their process, is to do compare and contrast and see what stayed and what went away. And as much as the Chief Justice says this isn't going to affect their processes, it's simple human nature that it will. Mm -hmm. um, I also wrote about this, um, Ruth, as you, well, as you well know, as my editor. Um, I read the 98-page uh, draft ruling and came away alarmed that overturning Roe could uh, also lead to the invalidation of, Bergefell, of Obergefell, which makes my marriage to Nick uh, legal. Um, I quote Missouri State Representative Ian Mackey, who I saw at the Milken Conference in Los Angeles, and he said to me, and I'm quoting, Griswold, Loving, Roe, Lawrence, and Obergefell survive only together. One without the other is non-existent. The rights of the marginalized are bonded together in writing through these decisions to form a single thread. If one tears, the, if one tears, the entire fabric is undone. And as I like to remi remind everyone every time you're on, Ruth, you are also a lawyer. Um, one, 
Should I be um, as concerned as I am about the future of Obergefell if the draft opinion actually becomes the final ruling? And talk about the sweep of Alito's draft uh, in your response. Well, let me just um, first tick through for our viewers the cases that you're talking about. Griswold is a case establishing a right to contraception, a right that most people, protected by the Constitution, a right that most people probably took for granted. Lawrence v. Texas is the case establishing a right to um, intimate personal conduct. You can't um, criminalize um, private homosexual activity. Uh, and Obergefell, of course, is the same-sex marriage case. Uh, the question about whether you should be worried about any or all of those is really a question that, to me, is the difference between the intellectual underpinning of those cases and the political status of those cases. As an intellectual matter, if you are to if you apply the test that Justice Alito applied to Roe and Casey. Um, which is whether they're um, in the whether abortion is in the Constitution. It's not whether it's deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the country. Um, arguable and arguable whether that is the um, set in stone test. Um, yes, if you apply that test, you get rid of a lot of these privacy decisions, which are the foundation of all of these rights. Uh, but as a practical matter, there is not the political ferment for taking away the right to contraception. There is not even the political ferment to undoing uh, same-sex marriage that there is on abortion. And so it's a contest between intellectual honesty and to some extent, political reality. And, you know, and thank you for that. Thank you for that, Ruth, um, um, for, for that intellectual analysis, because that actually makes me feel just a smidge better. But George, you know, is, is, Jonathan. <laughs> as I was reading through the draft opinion, it was that phrase who deeply rooted in, in the nation's history that really disturbed me because there are a lot of things that are deeply rooted on, in our nation's uh, history and culture that aren't so good. And the fact that, you know, we have that segregation is no longer the law of the land. We have to remember that segregation was deeply rooted in our nation's history, so much so that we have only been legally an integrated society for 57 years. So uh, from your perspective, George, why shouldn't I be concerned that if this ruling does become is actually this draft opinion is actually the final ruling? Why shouldn't I be concerned that other rights, including um, same-sex marriage would also go by the wayside. Well, first, uh, Jonathan, where do you live? Maryland, Virginia, D.C.? The district. District, okay. Well, were this to become a scythe that cuts down these other rights, which I think is highly unlikely, but were it to occur, all that that would do is say that same-sex marriage is not a constitutional right. But since states from time immemorial have been in charge of marriage law, uh, you you uh, and, and would come under the jurisdiction of the District of Columbia, and your right to uh, your current marriage would be absolutely secure. So my, <laughs> I, I, I take your point, um, but it also depends. Let's say we end, you know, Nick gets a job in say Idaho, and marriage equality isn't legal there, then what happens to my marriage? I, that's a rhetorical question because we've got, I, yeah. we're, we're gonna move, I wanna move away from Supreme Court and, and we, we need to talk about the economy because there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, the jobs report 
uh, came out this morning. A strong jobs jobs report, 428,000 jobs created. The unemployment rate uh, remained the same at 3.6%. I would love to get each of you to react to um, this good news from the economy. Ruth, you go first. Well, it's um, fine news from the economy, um, but the real news um, this week is the Fed's continued um, uh, move on interest rates. and as well as the economy is doing in terms of the unemployment rate and um, labor force participation and all of those good things. And we are recovering from the pandemic. The um, essential question for the next several months as we lead up to the midterms and for the next stretch is going to be whether the Fed is gonna be able to um, skillfully negotiate the very hard task of a soft landing that is to um, deal with this um, robust economy in a way that simultaneously constrains um, inflation. That is really difficult. They've started the task um, perhaps too late. Um, they need to do it in a very, very sensitive way. And that is still the unknown um, uh, phenomenon here of whether they're gonna be able to manage that adequately. Uh, George, would love your reaction um, to the jobs report, but also um, factoring in your reaction to the Fed's raising of interest rates and whether that will curb inflation. I think it, it will curb inflation. Uh, it's going to be not a soft landing. It's going to be a tough landing because the Fed, having caused the inflation largely, in part by enabling uh, the c Congress's spending habits, but also with what we call quantitative easing. easing. Quantitative easing is an example of how government talks when it does not want to be understood. That's a way of not saying printing money. Uh, but beyond that, uh, here's what's happening and why the, the good jobs report is, I think, of limited political impact. Not only, the, the amazing thing right now is that we're having proof that the best anti-poverty program is a tight labor market. The best measure for a more egalitarian society is a tight labor market. Unfortunately, when you combine a tight labor market with uh, inflation of seven, eight, nine, eight percent, all the gains, and I mean all the gains that uh, accrue to, to uh, the labor force are erased by the inflation. So that's, I think, explains why people uh, are not feeling as chipper as some people think they should. Um, Ruth, Deutsche Bank issued a report last week raising the alarm about impending uh, about an impending recession. Um, you know, some reporters I've talked to think that that report is an outlier. But how concerned should we be that a recession is indeed coming? Well, um, history uh, teaches us to be concerned. It is very difficult, as I was saying. Um, to get inflation under control without um, impacting economic growth. And um, that if we have a slowdown in growth, that is the recession. And we, uh, that is not good for, by definition, it's not good for the economy. Um, that is not gonna be good as um, the continuing inflation is not good. And so it's a sort of lose-lose. Um, as a political matter for Democrats who are going to be blamed, um, and the president who will be blamed no matter whether they're responsible or not for the situation. 
Mm -hmm. uh, one more topic to get into before we run out of time, and that's uh, President Biden's uh, amping up of his rhetoric uh, about President Trump, even if he's not mentioning his name. Uh, George, uh, President Biden said on Wednesday that the MAGA crowd is, quote, the most extreme political organization that's existed in American history in recent American history. What do you make of the president's comment, and is he right? Uh, depends on what you mean by recent. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan was worse. Uh, the secessionist movement before the Civil War. So it, it, if he means in the last 10, 15 years, he's got a case, I, I think. But it seems to me he's taking the bait from uh, Mr. Trump. One of the reasons Mr. Trump is, I think, a spent political force is that he doesn't understand the elemental fact of American politics, which is that elections are about the future. And Mr. Trump only wants to talk about the past. And now along comes the president saying, I too want to talk about the past. And I want to talk about Donald Trump. And I think most Americans say, can't these guys get over their monomania and their obsession with themselves and talk about something that uh, interests the rest of us? Ruth, do you agree with George? Is Donald Trump a spent force? I mean, we just saw him uh, endorse J.D. Vance in a crowded field for Senate in um, the Ohio Republican primary, and J.D. Vance won. So is he a spent force? Shouldn't, shouldn't the president, shouldn't Democrats, uh, if not talk about Donald Trump by name, talk about the movement he's leading? Um, if only he were a spent force. He is a one of those like storm systems that's lingering off the coast and gathering um, additional velocity before it comes and hits us again. Um, I, you know, we will know more about how uh, about Trump's um, continuing political potency um, after the next several weeks of primaries and see how the impact of his endorsement plays out. He's gotten smarter about it uh, Tuesday for those of it's Tuesday in Ohio for those of us who would like to see uh, Trump just uh, disappear and Trump and even more important Trumpism disappear um, should feel less good uh, after Tuesday than we did before. But it's still a question. The, the thing for me is, well, first of all, one very quick point. It's not like Democrats are not talking about the future. Republicans are decidedly, uh, ask Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, not spelling out their plans for the future. They don't want to go there. They're unhappy that Rick Scott went there and gave the opening um, for Biden to uh, uh, make his point about the ultra-MAGA crowd. Um, the thing that I worry about most is um, the ways in which Trumpism is going to outlast Trump, um, what, whether or not he's a spent force. And I mean two things by that primarily. One is the anti-immigration, anti-nativist, nativist sentiment um, that we've seen go on. If there was one thing that we could do that would help the economy, it would be to invite more um, workers in to increase immigration, especially um, smarter immigration. Um, but that seems pol a political non-starter after Trump. And the second is this out and out assault on the validity of our elections and the willingness to revisit um, elections that everybody who has any smidgen of intelligence and intellectual honesty knows were decided. If to those to extent those outlast Trump, that is not railing about that is not looking backwards, it's looking forwards. Uh, with a lot of legitimate worry. George, re real fast, because I'm we are running out of time, but Governor Larry Hogan said this 
Um, Republicans won't win back the White House by nominating Donald Trump or a cheap impersonation of him. One, is Hogan right? And two, what are the chances Republicans nominate Donald Trump or a, quote, cheap imitation? Uh, I, I think a knockoff Donald Trump, like a, a Rolex you buy on the street corner, uh, is not going to be convincing. Uh, remember, uh, George Wallace was a huge disruptive force in American politics. Then he got shot and left the scene, and there was no Wallaceism left without Wallace. So, uh, and no Perotism, for that matter, without Perot. Uh, I think uh, I still think Donald Trump is a period piece. It's a disagreeable period, but uh, uh, I think when the results come in from Georgia when uh, his candidate, former Senator Perdue, who's a former senator because Trump disrupted the elections uh, in early January 2001, uh, when Perdue loses to uh, the chief villain in Trump world, which is Governor Kemp of Georgia, uh, I think that's going to diminish him somewhat. And by the way, since we've had his, his hysterics of all sorts about voter suppression in Georgia, it's not working very well if people are actually trying to suppress votes because an astonishing number of voters on the first day of, of uh, early voting in Georgia in the, in the primaries right now. Huge numbers, huge numbers. Ruth Marcus, George Will, as always, we've run out of time. I want to thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.